Calling all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and in this episode, number 118, we have a special guest for you, and I'll tell you about that in a second. And also with us in the studio is our certified show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and to give you a few more hints, in this episode, you will learn how an arrow created acupuncture, how to find a good acupuncturist, and what acupuncturists can do for Lyme disease patients. Hmm, who could the guests be? I wonder. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're keeping y'all in suspense over here. <laughs> Killing you with the suspense. And in the meantime, we'd like to thank a couple people who have picked up the Lyme Ninja Radio Keto Challenge. Roy, why don't you thank them for us? Yep. Thank you, Ann and Jay, for taking the Lime Ninja Keto Challenge. We really appreciate it. And last week's winner of Dr. Ducharme's book, Lime Brain, was Garrett. So, da 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 Congratulations, Garrett. You are a contest ninja. Be on the lookout for an email from us. All right, Aurora. And I won't make you give us a bio on our guest because I'm the guest. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't figure that out already. I know, right? I interviewed Dr. Sally Schultz a couple months ago, and she was putting together a program for people with Lyme disease, and she wanted to interview an acupuncturist. So I recorded her interview of me, and that's what we're going to give you, kind of a special end-of-the-year meet-your-host-a-little-bit interview. That's what we've done. I think you'll find it entertaining. Maybe look behind the microphone a little bit at what goes on in my brain when I'm thinking about acupuncture. And it'll just be a nice way to wrap up the year. If you've ever thought about acupuncture, adding that to your Lyme protocol, I think it's a good idea. There are lots of reasons why that explain in this interview. Here is my interview, literally, interview of me by Dr. Sally Schultz. Hope you enjoy. Today I have the pleasure of introducing McKay Rippey, an acupuncture specialist for close to 30 years. McKay trained at the Thai Sophia Institute and now practices in rural Clinton, New York. He is a five-element acupuncturist following the laws of nature to diagnose in accordance with those laws and to work therapeutically to restore balance and harmony. Uh, he is a farmer a lacrosse fan, and a family man. I was particularly drawn to McKay because of his interest in and compassion for people with Lyme disease. He is the host of Lyme Ninja Radio. Welcome, McKay. Thank you so much. I usually don't think myself as a lacrosse man and a family man and a farmer, so it's nice to hear those things reflected back because they're, they're true. <laughs> they are true. 
So how did you get interested in acupuncture? Oh, my goodness. This is one of those serendipitous moments. And it probably started – I grew up in Washington, D.C. in a small row house in Adams Morgan. And about a block away from us was this massive bridge spanning Rock Creek Park. So if you cross, walked across this bridge and we walked across it to go to church and school, you could see north and south this amazing – view of of Rock Creek Park. So even though I was stuck in the middle of the city and our front yard was just a tiny, tiny little thing and surrounded by cement, there is this beautiful ribbon of green that, that just moves through the city. And my first school that I went to was a Montessori school on an old uh, mansion uh, in, in Northwest. And, and one of my first teachers was a park ranger. So here I am in the middle of the city and I've got this amazing connection with nature. And it seems even more exotic because again, my backyard was cement and my front yard was mostly cement. And then there's all this nature around me. And we're also a couple blocks from the zoo. So in the morning you could hear the howler monkeys getting started. So it's this strange juxtaposition. So fast forward about 20 some years later, I'm in college studying English literature and my father really unbeknownst to me had started acupuncture, but he made a donation to the the school, the local school, and they sent him a magazine that showed up about twice a year. And I started reading this on my breaks And there's one winter afternoon, I'm sitting in the sunshine reading about acupuncture and really the philosophy behind it. And the little voice and the light bulb goes off and says, I'm going to study this. And I was about 22 years old and that was it. Uh, There was no thought, there was no thinking, there was no planning. It's just, I'm going to do this. And here we are, like you said, almost 30 years later. Beautiful, beautiful story. So for a lot of our listeners, what is acupuncture? Ha. So I've been doing this for almost 30 years. I'm still not sure what it is. But what probably at the heart of acupuncture is observation. And it starts with nature. And the observation of, of what happens at different times of year. And I, I believe actually like the, the five element theory, which, which I'm trained in is really a roadmap for how to live, survive in nature. And some time two, three thousand years ago, somebody said, you know what? We've got this roadmap on how to survive in nature to kind of follow the rhythms of the season. I wonder if that holds true for inside and an individual as well. And they started applying this map to people. And the theory that holds it all together is this idea of energy. And depending on who you talk to, there is energy or there isn't energy. And I'm, I'm agnostic. I use the, the concept of energy all the time. So I, actually, I'm not agnostic. I believe, but I'm not, I, I, I don't feel that you have to believe in energy to understand acupuncture. But so anyway, so, so they take this idea that nature is flowing around us and that if you are in proper attunement with the natural flows, you will be healthy. 
And somewhere along the line, the story goes that this this man gets conscripted into the army, and he has terrible. He probably has IBS. He can't eat anything except for broth and boiled rice. And he goes to war and gets an arrow in his leg, and all of a sudden he can eat all the spicy everything he wants to eat. And he says, "I'm cured." <laughs> and he says, "It must have been the arrow in his leg." So that's the myth of how acupuncture started. So again, it starts with observation and what we can see. So it's not, you know, it's a different type of medicine. It's not based on test results and numbers and things like that. It's really what. What intervention makes a difference? And as you know, acupuncturists can use needles. They're, the Russians started using lasers. There are people using tuning forks. Uh, we've done hands-on. You can do cupping, of course, the Chinese herbs. So it's really what interventions, you know, really acupuncture, Chinese, Chinese medicine is all that. There's not, it's not just the needles. The needles are one small part of it. Does the uh, system that you use, uh, Use meridians to balance the energy? Yeah, absolutely. So the technical explanation is there's energy coursing through the body, just like there's traffic everywhere uh, in and around a city. But there are major pathways, major roadways where the cars gather, where the energy gathers and moves. And then there are these intersections along these roadways, and the intersections have functions to them. It's like along this intersection, perhaps more... Uh, let's say more circulation happens or along this intersection, something to do with the muscles happens. So the point, the intersections get literally blocked up. And what I think happens is the needle releases a small electrical charge that's built up and kind of clogged up the flow of this energy. So you release the, the flow of the energy and the function begins again. So the acupuncture isn't treating an organ per se, but it's treating the energy that allows that organ to manifest and affect the rest of the body. And that energy uh, relay is virtually instantaneous, is it not? That is one of the most bizarre things that I still have trouble wrapping my mind about. Let me tell you a story. When I had just gotten out of acupuncture school, I was probably still doing my clinical training. Uh, we had... Uh, three children at the time were in a small apartment outside of Baltimore, and my youngest child wakes up with night terrors. Now, if you've ever had a child with night terrors, they're screaming at the top of their lungs, and they're not awake. And she's about a year and a half. So, you know, we've had crying children before. So we try and wake her up. Okay, we rock her, we soothe her, we sing to her. We try to warm up a bottle, we give her a bottle, and it's it's not working. It seems like three hours, right? It's probably been like three minutes. We're starting to sweat. It's like the neighbors are going to start pounding on the on the floor soon. And so we try, okay, let's try and change her environment. Let's put her in a warm bath. Okay, that doesn't work. So now we're getting desperate. So, okay, well, how about if I smack her on the bottom and kind of shock her awake and maybe that'll work. So I smacked her bottom and still she's just screaming at the top of her lungs and arching her back and all that. And then the thought occurs, well, let's try acupuncture. So here I have this screaming one-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old and I, there's a point on the ankle that has to do with fear and quiet. So it's one of these intersections. It's the source point of the kidney. It's called Greater Mountain Stream. So it has to do – the kidney is all about the depth of winter and quiet and also cooling things down. And this the emotion associated with the kidney is fear. And so that, that's a point I chose – I put the needle in the sleeping, screaming child, 
Uh, she screamed slightly louder for half a second, and on the second half of that second, she was back asleep. Beautiful. And so at that point, it's like, okay, you know, there's some argument, you know, this is years and years ago that this may all be placebo. However, here's a screaming child who's asleep. We put a needle in her, and instantaneously, and it wasn't like a minute later, it was like a light switch, instantaneously is back asleep. So yeah, it's the healing, the energy shifts instantaneously and depending on what needs to heal, then the body re- can recover afterwards. So the healing can take some time and sometimes they're more than, you know, one or two blocks that have accumulated over years. So they need to be addressed as time goes on. But the movement of energy can, is instantaneous. Right. I'm reading a book now that's, that indicates that it's along the, the, uh, pathways of the fascia. That's the connective tissue lining that, uh, surrounds all the organs. And, uh, is, is that your thinking or how, how do you see it? There, that's one of the theories out there. And I think that one holds some water. I think acupuncture has several uh, pathways that it uses. So I, I think at this point in time, there may be one that we figure out, you know, science eventually figures out, yeah, this is the main one, but I think it's actually affecting on several layers. And I think that's one reason it's so hard to, to pin down what I, I, and I've come, there's some work by, uh, Dr. Gerald Pollack. He's got a lab out in university of Washington and he's doing some work on the structuring of water and the electrical charge of water, and particularly how it works inside the body. And I think acupuncture is tapping literally into this very subtle energy, literally, like electrical flow, Um, and that there are pathways, kind of these self-organizing pathways that get formed in, in life, in, in, in human beings and also, you know, mammals and other animals like that, they can't, they don't have a wall to them. But I think the electricity flows along this pathway. And again, there's these junction points that are the acupuncture points. And if the charge gets too great there, then the, the flow literally stops. And nobody's sure what's passing along these pathways. It may be electrical communication signals. It might be DNA, RNA kind of stuff. We, we, we don't know yet. But definitely these pathways do move along the fascia as well. And um, because most of the points are in spaces in between muscles, in between bones and muscles, in between ted- tendons. You know, people ask you, well, what, what are you putting the needle into? Is it a nerve? It's, it's no, it's really spaces. If I accidentally hit your nerve when I'm needling, we both know about it because it's an unpleasant event. It's like hitting your funny bone. It burns and tingles and zings and lasts for a while. But the release that you feel with an acupuncture needle, and this is, we get a little controversial here. Some people say, oh, acupuncture, you shouldn't feel anything at all. I disagree completely. When that a tiny little electrical charge is released, there is a sensation. You know, it's a burst. It's a firework. It can be kind of dull and achy, but most of the time it's a little flash. And the body picks up on that and, and there's a sensation. It pinches. You know, there is a sensation there. How, how big is the area <clears throat> that you're targeting? Ha. Uh, <laughs> so what's interesting as this as this the the water around the point gets disorganized it gets softer so as a point needs to be needled more it gets bigger and bigger but the actual point itself 
is is really tiny. And there'll be times where I'm needling a point trying to find it oh, three, four, you know, on a bad day, half a dozen times. Now, the good news is if you miss a point, you don't feel much of anything. Um, so it doesn't hurt every time you insert the needle. But and, and this can all be within like a little quarter inch circle. It's very, very precise. Very precise. And and so people should expect to experience some discomfort. Although I know when I having acupuncture for a tune up or balancing my body, um, I breathe out. And that, you know, when uh, with the thrust of, of the wrist and um, that kind of uh, numbs or dissipates the sensation. Yeah, any. I, I have patients who said, "Oh, I'm so glad that you taught me the breathing," because when I go get my blood drawn or get a shot, the nurses don't tell me to do that, but I do it on my own, and it's much better that way. Anytime, yeah, anytime our body tenses up, things are just gonna hurt more. And I don't want to, you know, most people are shocked at the nature of the sensation with acupuncture and not in a bad way because it it again i think it's a release of electricity so it only lasts the sensation lasts less than a second so by the time your body's kind of flinches a little bit or you recognize it's already gone and and you i'm sure you've had that experience too it's just it's so quick um so it yeah, i tell people i used to try to explain this and people would, their eyes would roll in the back of their head. <laughs> people say, do needles hurt? And they just want a simple ex- explanation. So I say, it pinches. So if you can stand a pinch, you can stand acupuncture. Right. And um, so you have the needle put, placed, and some people will, some acupuncturists will twirl the needle, and then you lie on the table for a period of time. If acupuncture is instantaneous, why do you have to st- lie there for the duration this gets into a very interesting area and there are different needle techniques and different schools of acupuncture teach different techniques and this goes way back each family in in a village or a city would have their style of acupuncture and then there would be traveling monks who would kind of cross-pollinate the ideas. And eventually, about 2,000 years ago, the first acupuncture books were commissioned by the emperor, the Chinese emperor at the time. And and things started getting write, written down. So in general, most of the acupuncture that's done is done with needles left in. Now, in my style, most of the needling is done with an in-and-out insertion that lasts all of a second. And there'll be times where we do leave the needle in when we're trying to calm energy down. I this, and I don't mean to insult. I'm not trying to insult people. I think some of the styles of acupuncture where they use 30 needles and leave them in is because their point location is good but not like they're 80% there and the same for like electrical stimulation of, of the acupuncture points. Again, if you miss the point by a little bit, you can still get an effect. And this is one of the confounding things when they study acupuncture, you put a needle in somebody and you're going to get a response by the body, but you hit the acupuncture point and it's multiplied when you get it right on. There's a study by Columbia and uh, a hospital in Hong Kong showing this. Was, they were all excited because they found this chemical cascade, this calcium channel 
cascade that happened when when they were doing some treatment. But what they found is when they got the point right on, this cascade was multiplied. It like doubled. So the accuracy matters a lot. So if you have the needle nearby the point, if you leave it in, I think you get the effect as opposed to really having to spend lots of time getting it precisely on. So again, this is not an insult. It's just a different way of, of approaching it. They've done lots of studies comparing different types of acupuncture. They all work. There's no one better. You know, it's more about your relationship with the practitioner and, and your affinity for the style they do rather than is one better than the other. I want to ask you about that, but first I'd like to ask you, McKay, what, uh, how do you think, how do you imagine or, or know that, uh, the that acupuncture is affecting the mitochondria, which are the little powerhouses of the cell. Holy smokes! <laughs> it's funny. So here's I'm. Mean, this is going to be a long answer. And I apologize. Um, acupuncture is two thousand years old, and it's Chinese. And so again, they're looking at these minor, mild interventions and then looking at what response there is to it. So did people have fatigue 2,000 years ago? Absolutely. Did they have any idea what mitochondria was? Absolutely not. So they had concepts like Jing, and that's spelled J-I-N-G. We transliterate it as, as Jing. And Jing is this kind of DNA deep source energy that we have, kind of our potential energy and the energy that fuels us through our life and through our, through our day. Um, so, so there are treatments to bolster Jing. Now, are these treatments affecting the ATP and the mitochondria and the citric acid cycle and all that, probably the studies haven't been done yet. So we can't say for sure, but definitely you talk to people who have acupuncture is, you know, one of the, one of the common things actually is people will get more tired right after a treatment and then feel the energy the next day or, or later on in the day. And I have a client who comes in and she basically has to take a walk around the block before she gets in her car because she feels spacey and loopy and, and just very, very relaxed. But she's a, uh, hardcore amateur bicyclist and does all kinds of racing and online stuff. And this is one of the things that keeps her going, giving her lots of energy. So yes, does acupuncture build your reserves and your strength and help you recover like that? Absolutely. Do we know it's influencing the ATP? I haven't seen studies. Maybe somebody's studying that. I just assume it is and kind of leave, you know, leave that type of spot on hardcore science to, to more the nutrition side of my practice or the, you know, the sleep study side of my practice and leave the acupuncture to deal with Jing and water energy and restoration and deep yin and things like that. Great. So if, um, how do you know you've got a good acupuncturist? <laughs> you feel better. <laughs> but there are some conditions that take... Uh, like Lyme disease, yeah. Lyme disease. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll take a stab at that. So I kind of half-jokingly said you'll feel better. Um, and, and really, at, I mean that seriously. On some level, you're going to feel better. And maybe it's not the main symptom, your main complaint that you came in. When I was in training, the 
my teacher studied with J.R. Worsley, who's a British gentleman. He's, he's since passed away, but his clinic was in England. And he came and toured through the States and would promote acupuncture and promote his school. So they, they went and studied with him, and he, he helped them set up the school that I went to. And the British had a phrase back then, and they, it went something like, I feel better within myself. And so maybe you're coming in for your back pain. And and here here's a story. The, the, this way back when I was in Southern Maryland, this man comes in, and what got him in the door? Men are very reluctant to seek medical care. <laughs> it's part of our nature. What got him on the door? He bought his five year old daughter a bicycle for her birthday, and he couldn't teach her to ride it because his back hurt too much. So finally, said, "Okay, I got to do something about this back." And he finally makes his way into my office. So we're a couple treatments in, and he says, "Does." Does acupuncture work on your emotions? And I say, well, why Why do you ask that? He said, well, I'm in my weekly sales meeting, and these meetings are very contentious, and the fur's flying, and I'm usually right in the middle of it. And he said, this time I was just kind of leaning back in my chair and watching these guys attack each other, and I didn't get sucked into it. He said, I thought that was very strange. I said, yes, acupuncture in getting balanced in when your energy, when these pathways are moving, when these intersections are open and flowing, everything functions better. And so eventually his back got better, but it wasn't the first thing to get better. So he knew he was feeling better on some level, even though the back pain was a little more stubborn and took some healing. So again, the, the energy changes instantaneously. So your mood can change instantaneously. I've seen pain disappear instantaneously when it's more like a neurological type pain. But if there's healing that needs to be done, the body needs some time and support to do the healing. So things can take a while there. But if you have a good connection, you feel a good connection with this person, uh, you, you understand what they're doing, they're explaining to you what's going on there, you know, they're not selling you the, the sun and the moon, telling you that they're going to cure everything instantaneously, and, and you have a good sense of this, and at some level you're feeling healthier, then you probably have a pretty good acupuncturist. Right. Uh, so there's a lot of talk today about toxins and having, uh, the toxins affect the terrain of the body. Um, will acupuncture work if you're toxic? Acupuncture can acupuncture helps the body function to its fullest capacity. That said, you know we're finding with a lot of this genetic study that there are pathways that are broken and that we need extra support. And this is kind of where the the yang of acupuncture and the yin of Chinese herbal and dietary therapy come in. So let's say, for example, that, uh, you know, your body has a bricklayer inside and the bricklayer is tired and worn out and the acupuncture can kind of motivate the bricklayer layer to do its job better within the body and let's say re rebuild tendons the, let's say the brick layer is part of the body that rebuilds tendons but if the brick layer doesn't have bricks it could be the best brick layer in the world doesn't have bricks then it doesn't matter right you also you need both you need the yin and the yang you need the capacity the function but you also need the raw materials so there can be a time where acupuncture doesn't work because it's not an issue of the bricklayer it's an issue of the brick so you need to be able to see both it's not an either or uh and and 
you know, that's where some of the acupuncture miracles come in. It's because there's tons of bricks lying around and the bricklayer is just for whatever off the job. And the acupuncture kind of wakes up the bricklayer, calls them back to work, and all of a sudden the healing can begin again. Great. Um, how did you get interested in Lyme disease, McKay? Two intersecting pathways. The first is probably the, the, the minor pathway. I, I got bit myself about 12 years ago. And luckily, my wife, at the, when we were in Maryland, she worked for the Johns, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in their PR department. And I would tease her that she would come home every day with a new way to die. <laughs> and one of the things that they got interested at some point uh, was Lyme disease. So she was doing stories of Lyme disease and she would talk about it. And it's like, okay, that's an interesting disease, especially this whole bullseye rash thing. That's, you know, kind of curious. But it's at this point, you know, it's 30 years ago. It's, it's a minor thing. And even now the, you know, the CDC and the infectious disease people really aren't owning up to the seriousness of, of this epidemic, this pandemic. So fast forward, we're up in New York. I'm down along the Hudson river visiting some friends and, uh, I must've gotten bit. I didn't feel it. I didn't see the tick, but I got home. I went to do some Aikido and got overheated in the summer day in this little tiny studio. It was me, a senior student. I was just a beginner and the instructor. And they were just throwing me all over the room. And I worked up a really good sweat and exhausted me. And then I got this worst summer flu, the worst flu I've ever had. And I was like, oh, wow, these guys really killed me. So I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm a really bad patient, miserable, you know, all the typical flu symptoms, tired, cranky, achy. And Sunday morning, I was dragging myself to the bathroom saying, when is this ever going to stop? And I look in the mirror, and there on my arm was a perfect, perfect bullseye rash. And I thought to myself, oh, this is Lyme disease. And one of those bizarre moments, too, talking about things changing instantly. I felt better instantly. Now, I was still sick. So we bundled myself up, went down to the ER, and the doctor said, well, it sure looks like Lyme disease. You know, again, this is the first one we've ever seen here in central New York. Do you mind if everybody on duty comes by and looks at the rash? Because we want everybody to see this. So every nurse, everybody came through the room and looked at the rash and said, thank you very much. And I got my two weeks of doxycycline. Um, and luckily, this was all within days. So it was just enough to slow down the replication of the Lyme disease, to let my immune system, you know, I'm still fairly young, otherwise fairly healthy. And I followed up with some acupuncture and some herbal uh, tinctures, a, a teasel tincture, I believe. And really, for the most part, my wife says I lost some of my hairline, and I think that's true. And I probably lost some of my jing, so my ATP function. I'm not quite as energetic as I feel I should be. I just, I just kind of run out of energy a little more often than I should, I think. So I'm at like 90% or 95%, something like that. So that happened. And then just kind of moved along. And then all of a sudden, people in this area started showing up with Lyme disease. And I started hearing about it. And I have a mentor. His name is Greg Lee. He's in Frederick, Maryland. He's an acupuncturist. I went to school with him. And he's also an expert far more than I am on Lyme disease. Um, he, and he's willing to try anyway, he's just a genius and just scouring the world for different treatment modalities. And I knew that existed. So I went, went to go train with him. It's like, 
he taught me that the traditional medicine is so underserving this population. And I'm thinking, if this is happening here in my neighborhood, I've got to take care of these people because their doctors won't. You know, it's just who knows when Western medicine is going to catch up, hopefully soon. But at this point, it isn't. So I felt it was a mission of mine to take care of these people. And, you know, as I've started getting known a little bit for working with Lyme disease, they're just coming out of the woodworks. You know, they're just people everywhere who have chronic Lyme disease. Some of them know it and some of them don't. Yes, some of them don't. Um, what can acupuncture do for Lyme uh Specifically, the needles themselves aren't particularly effective in getting rid of the bacteria. And that's partly the nature of this particular bacteria. There's this concept in Chinese medicine called goo syndrome. And essentially, goo is described as oil seeping into flour, and then the practitioner's job is to separate out the flour and the oil after they've mixed together. So it's this very sticky uh, condition. Uh, and so acupuncture can help normally with – I help people with just normal flus and viruses all the time, and they tend to speed up their recovery and so forth and so on. But the blind bacteria and some of the – especially when you have the co-infections folded in there – become more. It's like more than the bricklayer can handle. So the needles can help with your spirit. So they can make you feel calmer. They can help some with the sleep. They can help uh, keep you motivated. So that's a part of acupuncture we don't talk about a lot. And then you start bringing in associated techniques. So you can do some cupping or wet cupping. You can bring in Chinese medicine. You can bring in essential oils. You can do uh, frequent frequency-specific microcurrent-type things uh, and, and these other alternative treatments. The needles themselves can be super helpful, and acupuncturists can be a wonderful person to make somebody – feel listened to and taken care of and kind of coordinate the big picture of things, especially if there isn't a Lyme literate person around or if, you know, you've reached at, look, at some point, a practitioner, whether it's an acupuncturist, a doctor, a Lyme literate doctor, a spiritual healer, at some point, the, the your practitioner takes you through the eye of the needle and you come out healed or they, we, we, I bump up against my own blindness, my own places where I haven't been able to, to heal yet. And I take the person as far as they can go and they need to go see somebody else. So I encourage people in my practice and, and in the Lyme community also is like, you know, ride this horse, ride your relationship with your practitioner as long as you can. But once you feel like progress has stopped, it's not. It, it doesn't diminish your relationship and the success you've had with your practitioner. It just may be that's all they have to offer and you need to find somebody else. So that's a very long answer to the question is like acupuncture. The needles themselves are a small part of treatment with Lyme disease, but they can be a crucial component. Right. Well, they can also – you're not really focused on symptoms, but you can address the the pain, the anxiety, the insomnia, uh, the mood uh changes that go along with Lyme. Exactly. And that's back to really particularly five element acupuncture. And we, you know, we're, we're trained. We're not treating the symptoms. In fact, don't chase the symptoms around. What you're doing is you're treating a person's causative factor, the, the foundational energy wobble or disturbance that 
leads you know, lead to all the pathways. So we're trying to get as far upstream, like we're trying to find the cause of the pollution as far upstream as we can and remove that so that all downstream, everything begins to heal on its own self naturally, rather than going downstream and trying to save, you know, the minnows and trying to save the crawfish and trying to save the frogs individually. It's like, we want to go all the way upstream. It's like, what what's poisoning this river? You know, what can we change all the way at the beginning? So the few, we have a law we call the law of least action. The perfect acupuncture treatment is somebody comes into your office, you shake their hands and look them in the eye and say hello, and they're healed. <laughs> you know, you get them on such a deep level that, that that's the intervention. Now, obviously, you know, things can be much more complicated than that, mostly limited by our ability to, to see clearly what's going on. But I, in my practice, I'm always trying to take needles away. What's, what's the center point? And that's really a five element, uh, type of, uh, treatment strategy and, and design. We're really kind of Taoist that way. Taoist and Zen. Uh, you deal with a lot with, let's just say, pain. Mm-hmm. People come to see you first for pain, or where are you in the line of seeking assistance? Where are the acupuncturists? Um, in my community, we're at the bottom. So by the time somebody has come to see me, they have a chiropractor, they have a massage therapist, they've been to several medical specialists, and they're kind of in this this in-between space. So it's not so severe that they're incapacitated, but it's definitely impacting their life. And they don't like their options. Their options are either the doctor said, well, gee, I don't know what we can do for you. Or here, you're going to have to go on these these medications or narcotics or we're going to do surgery. And the person says, you know, that's that doesn't sound right to me. At some level, their intuition says this isn't the right thing. So but they also have to be motivated. Some people just become resigned at this point. Well, I got to live with this. But there are other people who said, you know what, there's got to be another way. And in Asking that question, acupuncture all of a sudden rises to the top. So then they start talking to their neighbors. And, oh, yeah, you know, my neighbor, Bob, he tried acupuncture and it helped with his, you know, fill in the blank. And so the, the lines start intersecting and eventually somebody gets my name and number and then they give me a call. But out here, we're at the bottom of the list. Now, maybe in San Francisco or New York City or Boston or something, acupuncture is higher up the list. But uh, right here where <laughs> I'm often the stop of last resort. So that's uh, a reflection of people's resistance to think outside the box in seeking assistance? Um, that's a very interesting – I'm stalling. I, I find that my when I'm interviewing people, they'll, they'll say this when they need to think a little bit. That's a very interesting question. <laughs> it's just, it's just, I, I, it hasn't been rehearsed. Yeah, exactly. It's – um. I think it's a combination of things. So first of all, there's the financial part of things, right? And we've been trained to not pay for medical care. Now that's, that's starting to shift as the copays are going up and up. I mean, copays used to be 10, 15 bucks and now they're 50, 75 bucks. So people are getting used to paying out money when they go to see a medical practitioner. So that's starting to shift things a little bit, but still it's like, wait a minute. I've already paid for everything up front. It's like, you know, you go to the medical bu- buffet, you pay your insurance, and it's all you can eat. It's supposed to be all you can eat after that. And that that's beginning to break up. So part of it is just financial. You know, people aren't made of money. 
Most people aren't. So there is a financial consideration to it that I think is a big part. The other part with acupuncture is the needles. And we're, our experiences early on with needles aren't the best. So, you know, it's something else to overcome. And then it's just familiarity. Uh, we haven't had our Tiger Woods. So Tiger Woods came along and all of a sudden everybody was playing golf. It's like we're not I, – I tease – Tease other practitioners around here. It's like we're we're not around here for a restaurant to succeed. It needs to be in the middle. It's like we had an Indian restaurant come in, and even though we're a college town, it's like people were curious in the beginning, and then the traffic fell off. We're not we're not mainstream. Everybody's heard of it. Oh, this is a great story. This <laughs> this is. I had a patient come in once and said, "You know, I've been thinking about acupuncture and trying to help get the word out because I really like it and think a lot of people would benefit." He said, but that, you know, there's a fundamental problem. I said, oh, that's interesting because I think about it a lot. And she, and she said, well, here's, here's your problem. She said, acupuncture is like cannibalism. And I said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's nothing like cannibalism. She said, hang on, hang on. She said, everybody's heard of it, but nobody does it. It's like, oh, okay. I see your point here. So I, I did the numbers and essentially the numbers are equal to people who jump out of airplanes for fun. So there are as many acupuncture treatments as there are parachute jumps in a year in the U.S. And so it's the same sort of thing. It's we're we're still rare birds. Everybody's heard of us, but it's not we we haven't made the leap. It's like yoga made the leap, whatever that was, 10, 15 years ago. Yoga used to be just kind of this thing that some strange people did. People traveled to India and did yoga and the weird thing. And then all of a sudden, everybody's doing it. It's like there are a hundred yoga places around here in church basements and art centers and everywhere. Every corner there's a yoga class. But acupuncture hasn't made that leap yet. So, you know, at some point somebody may popularize it or it might be that there's just enough resistance that, you know, maybe it just never quite gets there. Maybe we're just this special, this special little group. But I like, I like to think that we can make the leap in popularity. You know, it's like we need we need the right celebrity or the right TV show to bring it to the mainstream. Well, uh, acupuncture certainly wasn't taught in medical school when I was in medical school, albeit that's a long time ago. But <laughs> you mean not yesterday? <laughs> not yesterday. We're not close. Uh, but I, I, I doubt that to any significant degree, much like nutrition, is not. Uh, a big topic in medical school. So I think that if we can get the medical community, the conventional medical community to be more, uh, to embrace it more, that um, it will be accepted more. I was standing in line I was in acupuncture school in Baltimore, Mondalmin Mall. So one of the, one of these miserable DMV places. And of course, because we're in a stressful situation, you become foxhole buddies with the people around you. And this old Jewish man turns around and says, you know, so son, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. I said, well, I'm, I'm in school. I'm getting my master's degree. Oh, master's degree. That's wonderful. What are you studying? Acupuncture. And his brow furrows. He goes, acupuncture, acupuncture. How, how, how long are you studying? And I said, well, it's a three year, you know, it's a three year program. Three years, you know, it gets all animated. Three years. You could be a doctor. What do you want to study acupuncture for? So I, I gave my stock answer. I said, you know, I, I don't like blood. He goes, oh, no, oh, 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 okay. 
but but it's it, the positions they have so much on their plate. The the school I went to had a little bit of a relationship with Hopkins School of Medicine, and there was a rotation where the doctors could come through and get exposed to acupuncture. And there is a group of, they call themselves medical acupuncturists. And they, you know, their training is, is varied. I'm, I'm one of the people who says the more people doing acupuncture, the better. I'm not like, there's some acupuncturists who get very territorial and say, no, only an acupuncture can do acupuncture and nobody else can. But in my mind, the more the merrier. I'm trying to make this, this gap from kind of this fringe medicine to mainstream. So because of these doctors doing acupuncture, like doctors don't, for the most part, do nutrition, although this changed with functional medicine. Doctors don't do chiropractic, you know, except for a few osteop- weird osteopath people, right? Quote, unquote, weird. But there are quite a few doctors who do acupuncture. And this has helped lessen the resistance. And it doesn't mean that ac- uh, doctors are embracing acupuncture, but at least they're not hostile to it. They used to be hostile to acupuncture. And at this point, they're much more willing to kind of support a patient who's going to try acupuncture and in some kind of sticky cases even refer. Like uh, within the past month, I got a referral from a from a urologist who referred a Lyme patient. And that's, you know, that's just, that's a rare event, especially up here. Uh, tell us, uh, your, you have a brain fog breathing technique. I do. Thanks for bringing that up. So one of the things I noticed with my Lyme patient, I, I have gadgets in my office. So I've got this weird kind of love of technology. And one of the things I measure for every patient, every time they come in is their blood oxygen level. And it's, you know, it's just one of those simple little clips that goes on a fingertip and uses infrared light to, to somehow make a calculation. And I found consistently that the Lyme patients have low blood oxygen. And as you know, the brain's a very hungry organ. It needs lots of oxygen and lots of fuel to make it work properly. And almost everybody who has Lyme at some point has brain fog in various degrees to the point where they forget where they are or where they're driving to uh, just having trouble accessing words, kind of more normal brain fog type of things. And so in, in researching that, I came across an old Ayurvedic technique that's got some science. They've studied this some, and it's alternate nostril breathing. So I combined alternate nostril breathing with controlled breathing uh, so there are many breathing techniques where you take deep breaths in, you hold your breath and you exhale. And this helps not only the oxygen get through your lungs into your bloodstream, but then helps the oxygen in your bloodstream get into the tissues. One of the things that happens is when we, when we're stressed, we hyperventilate. We actually have an insufficiency of carbon dioxide in the body because we've expelled it all. And carbon dioxide in, in small amounts acts as a signaling, mo- signaling molecule telling the oxygen where it needs to go. So if you've cleared out all your carbon dioxide, you can have lots of oxygen in your bloodstream, but it's not getting to the organs. And that's when somebody hyperventilates and passes out, that's what's happening. It's like they've got lots of blood oxygen. They're at 100% saturation, but it's not getting to the brain. So, And then you combine this with alternate nostril breathing, which is this funny little crossing the midline type of thing. And there's studies showing that it helps synchronize the brain. And one of the 
effects of brain fog, the damage that we have, is that the left and right hemispheres, their communication breaks down some. So you put these two together, and so you've got this relaxing, oxygenating, tempo breathing thing combined with the alternate nostril breathing. It can really help your brain kind of get back into sync, relax, and and clear some of this brain fog. Uh, so can you, uh, in a, in a, a couple of steps say, okay, uh, close off one nostril, yep. breathe deep. Uh, can you go through that sequence? Sure. So I, I start with my right thumb on my right nostril and exhale for four seconds, hold for four seconds, breathe in for four seconds and hold for four seconds. So it's a, it's, it's a 16 second cycle and then you switch. Then I use my right index finger, close off my nef- left nostril and then start again. So breathe out four seconds out, four seconds hold, four seconds in and four seconds hold again. So you really, you're holding your breath twice in between these really deep breaths. You're really trying to clear out your lungs or fill them up as much as you can quickly. And it's the holding that really allows the oxygen to start moving back and forth between the the lungs and the, the bloodstream and also the bloodstream and then the tissues. And then the alternating, it's just one of those weird little midline things. And I don't think anybody has a real explanation for why that works, but it definitely just helps the brain. It helps you wake up. So don't, if you're stressed, don't do this at night because it'll wake you up. It's not a relaxation technique. It's really a focus focusing and livening technique. Um, there are other techniques you can do to, to help your brain relax, to help you get to sleep. So don't do this at night. And uh, there are some, when I was studying chronic healing, they would say to increase the uh, period of the hold, you know, from four seconds to five to six. Is that, is, how do you feel about that? For this particular technique, I don't think it's necessary. I think that as a other techniques, absolutely, you can do that. You could bring it up to five. Essentially, slowing your breath down slows your heart rate down and, and really helps the body kind of get into sync. So in Chinese medicine, the, the lung is the prime minister, and its job is to take the the orders from the, the emperor, the heart, and transmit it throughout the entire body. So there's there's something about the rhythm and breathing that really helps the body get in sync and get on the same page. You can imagine the kingdom of the body is not all all behind the emperor that you know there's a little rebellion over here in your left elbow and down on your right knee that uh, things aren't working together so as they get communication with the emperor and get on the same page and say oh, okay we can we can get behind this we can get behind the emperor that just the body's working in a better stage so you know it's it might be something i haven't really thought about that it might be something to begin to increase the the periodicity of that to some point um, you are the host of Lime Ninja, uh, Lime Ninja Warrior, Lime Ninja Radio. Um, tell us about it. Now that was part of deciding to become an expert in Lyme disease. So first of all, I started, I just love podcasts. I'll put on the podcast, put on my, uh, earmuffs and the, the earbuds underneath the earmuffs and hop on a tractor and, you know, just do the farm work. And it's, I just love listening. I, I think that's just from childhood. I love listening to information that way. I, it works for me. So I started looking for podcasts 
about Lyme disease, and I only came across Katina Macris's show. And in listening to it, I thought, well, you know, there's space out there for another podcast, and people might appreciate it. And if I start a podcast, I can probably get interviews with experts like yourself that normally, if I called them up, wouldn't want to talk to me. So this is a great way to, on a selfish level, educate myself, and then on a community kind of unselfish level, spread my education out with everybody else and let other people learn along with me. So uh, essentially we interview, well, basically two or three different types of people. One, I call them Lyme ninjas and they're the, they're the people with Lyme disease who are dealing with it day to day. And really they just, they tell their stories and there's something just very healing about healing, uh, hearing another person's story. And it just, it, we resonate with that and we feel confirmation with that. We feel that we're not alone anymore. The isolation begins to break down some. So I've gotten amazing letters from people who said, you know, I've been stuck in my bed for the past six months. And the only thing keeping me going is hearing, you know, Lime Ninja Radio. I can't read. I can't even watch television, but I can listen quietly to your show. It doesn't take much energy to do that. And then I interview experts and some of the experts are experts in Lyme disease and treating Lyme disease. And some of them are just experts in their field. So I've talked with people who are experts in vitamin C or magnesium or vitamin D. Uh, and then I've also interviewed, you know, Horowitz and researchers like Eva Shapi. Uh, so it's really, you know, there's this wide mixture. And a lot of times it's getting to the point now where people are starting to contact me. So that's interesting. In the beginning, I was all, all the one reaching out. And so there's really, it's amazing. Like the last interview we just put out there were, were two young people. Uh, they both had Lyme disease and they're both dealing with it and had amassed massive bills, medical bills, and were looking for ways to pay for it. And out of that, they didn't find anything. They're both older than 25 and there's no real charities out there. And the young man, Greg, decided, well, you know what? I'm going to start a charity. So he started a ticked off foundation and has done some concerts and some other things. And his work inspired another Lyme patient to say, well, I want to help this. So she's come up with all these kind of alternative ways to raise money to, to provide grants, such as just recycling shampoo bottles. And so there's this special recycling campaign that she's put together. And it, you know, it's just, I'm amazed by people and their passion and their wanting to help others and reach out. The Lyme community is amazing. And maybe it's like that Mondaman Mall, the Jewish man, we're all in this foxhole together. So we really kind of pull together there. It might, it might be that effect, but I think I'd like to think it's just the generosity in the human heart and that we really have this capacity for love and helping each other. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so much, McKay. McKay Rippey, uh, host of Lime Ninja Radio. Um, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Dr. Sally. Okay, that was very fun. Good. I had fun too. <laughs> um, thank you so much. And I just love what you're doing and I applaud you and you make such a difference and what an awesome hour with you. Thank you very much. It's nice to be on the other side of the microphone, so to speak. 
I have to say, Dad, for the first time ever, what a terrible interview. What? <laughs> <laughs> You're supposed to be a professional by now. I'm just kidding. Well, I am. I've been practicing acupuncture for 20-whatever <laughs> years now, 25, 26 well, I was talking about the interviewing process itself, but. Oh, really? Yes, 100 episodes. <laughs> Get it together. <laughs> yeah. No, I really, I liked the, I really did like this interview. I liked the, I always like hearing you talk about acupuncture. So it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to get to hear you talk about that with, at length with other people, right? Well. And, you better say that. It'll make you send your Christmas presents back. <laughs> no, don't do that. No, but uh, what I liked about this interview was your takeaway message at the end of it was that people, it's okay to move on to a health practitioner from your health practitioner. And I think that's a message that one doesn't often hear. Uh, like you hear stories about, you know, those, those old country doctors who would, uh, you, they would deliver you as you, when you were a baby and then they'd take care of you all for the rest of your life. But when you are sick with something as debilitating or as chronic as Lyme disease, then you were saying, you know, you can either stay with somebody until you're cured or you run into the practitioner's own limitations. And I think that's a really big, humble thing to say, um, to acknowledge that you can't help everybody. Lyme disease is humbling. It's humbling as a patient, but it's also humbling as a practitioner because you do just hit the brick wall sometimes and you just scratch your head and you want to help. You desperately want to help your patients and the truth is sometimes they just need a fresh set of eyes the situation needs a fresh set of diagnostics uh, maybe a new approach maybe something outside of the box that you've been thinking in to help move things along and you know you form attachments with your patients you get to like them and really want the best for them and it is a little bit hard to say goodbye but sometimes that's the most efficacious thing to do or the thing that, that stands the chance of breaking through rather than just sticking with it and sticking with it and sticking with it. After some point, it becomes the definition of insanity, that old saw about doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So it's a tough message. And, you know, you don't have to cast your practitioner overboard. You can still stay in touch and maybe check in every once in a while just to keep that relationship going. But there does come a time where you need to move on and it would be best for everybody. So that's, that is a good, it's the end of the year. It's the beginning of a new year, episode 118 here. And so maybe that's a good message is, is for the new year. Those of you who are really stuck in your professional relationships, maybe it's time to look around a little bit. If you'd like to go back and hear Dr. Sally Schultz being interviewed by me, that's episode number 107, and the tables are turned there, so you'll get to hear what Dr. Sally's experience with Lyme disease and kind of what her current thoughts are and treatment protocols are for Lyme disease. And also want to shout out again to those of you who have joined us taking the keto challenge 
Aurora, you're still taking your ketones? I have, I have. And uh, they've been going for, it's been going fairly well. I have had to make a few tweaks in my diet and add a few supplements in to make sure that everything balances out. But I'm feeling good. I'm feeling um, energetic. And it's, after a month of taking it, I finally, it feels like, grime off of a dirty window is being <laughs> washed off. And that's the best analogy I can make for it. It's like I've had uh like I've had kind of the sustained energy for, for a month now and it's finally starting to impact that wow I can actually function at this level. So it's really nice. All right, that's super cool. And if you're interested yeah. in the Lime Ninja Radio Keto Challenge, just go on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you'll see a splash screen and just click on the learn more button and I'll take you to a page that gives you all the information you need. And this week we don't have a giveaway for a book. So hang in there. We'll try to get one up to you in the next couple of weeks and we'll let you know when the next giveaway is. Last item on the agenda for 2016 is, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas teach math to solve its own problems? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.